0: The Relations Committee will come to order. If it's uh, not objectionable to members, I think we'll begin the hearing, and uh, as soon as we have a quorum, go ahead and try to pass out the nominees that are before us. We thank our witnesses for being here. Uh, we thank Ambassador now Acting Assistant Secretary Harvey, and General Cooper for joining us today. This is the committee's second hearing on security assistance in just over a year, but it's an issue that has been raised during many of our other meetings. This kind of assistance is an investment in our own security. We help ourselves by helping other nations police their own neighborhoods. Which nations we help and how we help them are crucial foreign policy decisions. Since the 1960s, the law provides that the Secretary of State, under the direction of the President, has the responsibility for the continuous supervision and general direction of economic assistance, military assistance, and training programs. We need to be clear on that because our security demands that we work across agency lines to develop coherent security assistance programs that serve our interests and those of our partners. While the Defense Department has long played an important role in this area, since 9-11 that role has grown enormously in size and scope. We cannot tackle the real challenges if we are fighting turf wars within other bureaucracies. And our teamwork is necessary. and while teamwork is necessary, it's not enough. We need clear goals and a way to keep track of how we are doing. Between state and DOD, we're spending about $18 billion a year on security sector assistance. As General Hooper said the other day, this is not a pickup game. We need professionals. Last year, Congress consolidated many of the narrow and overlapping authorities on the defense side and has given the Defense Department a more flexible and global train-and-equip authority. I was pleased that the measure signed into law requires the concurrence of the Secretary of State for these activities and encourages both departments to jointly develop and plan such programs. I would like to hear from OSD and state witnesses on the question of concurrence versus coordination as it pertains to security cooperation activities already in progress, such as the counter ISIS train and equip. At the State Department, significant security assistant roles are held by four different functional bureaus, each with their own budget, plus all of the regional bureaus, and these bureaus report down through four different secretaries, making it difficult to see who's in charge. Under this current organizational structure, I have concerns about the department's ability to manage its own programs while also reviewing and shaping DOD efforts. I hope the redesign plan will address this matter, and any insight our witnesses could share into that process would be greatly appreciated. We've made some progress since we last gathered on this topic, and I look forward to hearing from our witnesses on how the State Department and the Department of Defense will continue their efforts to make these important programs work as well as possible. With that, uh, I ask our distinguished ranking member, my friend, if he would like to make introductory comments.
1: Well, well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I I really do believe this is one of our most important hearings we've had this year, and I thank you very much for doing this, because we all understand uh, that we are talking about our national security. Uh, The U.S. law mandates that the Secretary of State supervise and oversee all foreign assistance and service that U.S. foreign policy. All military and security-related assistance to foreign governments and personnel, including military-to-military programs, are part of the U.S. foreign assistance and must serve U.S. foreign policy. The Department of Defense has been expanding its security assistance activities by leaps and bounds over the last 16 years. Most of these activities is to build foreign countries' defense capabilities are necessary and important. We acknowledge that. My chief concern, however, is that DOD is setting up an essentially parallel security assistance structure without sufficient State Department oversight, input, and coordination. Combine this with the current administration's profoundly unwise proposal to slash the Department of State's budget, big reorganization efforts, and increasing loss of experienced personnel and one could easily see a scenario in which the Department of Defense could become the dominant source of U.S. security assistance. This shift from the state to DOD could not only result in dueling foreign policies, it could also send a fundamental message that the United States considers security relationships over all other U.S. foreign policy objectives or concerns, including human rights or good governance. (laughs) Last year's National Defense Authorization Act expanded the ability of the Department of State to be involved in the actual formation of DOD assistant projects, in addition to requiring the Department's concurrence in their executions. Congress sent a clear message that DOD and State must work more closely on security assistant projects earlier in the process and to a far greater extent than previously. Uh, It was good to see this. We saw that the members of both the Armed Services and Foreign Relations Committee understood the importance of this coordination, and the lead from the Department of State in the National Defense Authorization Act, uh, in fact, did uh, carry that out. I hope we will hear today that we are doing better coordination and cooperation between the two departments. and That has been greatly increased, and from what I've heard just from the conversations, uh, there's reason to believe that that cooperation exists. I also have deep concerns about various aspects of our security assistance, especially how arms sales are used to support our foreign policy. For example, I'm concerned about the previously proposed arms sales to our increasingly problematic NATO ally, Turkey. I oppose the sale of semi-automatic pistols due to Erdogan bodyguard force, the same force that viciously beat peaceful protesters in Washington, D.C. I am pleased that the sale was effectively canceled last week, although I remain perplexed that given the gruesome videos of the incident, it took four months for the administration to cancel the sale. More recently, Turkey purchased the Russian anti-aircraft system despite warnings from the U.S. and other NATO countries. I believe this is sanctionable under the new Russia Sanctions Act, and I've asked the Secretary of State to review this. I would be interested to hear. What, if any, reviews of the U.S.-Turkey security relationships are underway, including assistance and arms sales. I look forward to discussing our security relationship with Nigeria. I support a close and supportive security relationship to defeat Boko Haram, provided that the Nigerian forces we support are in compliance with the Leahy laws and broader human rights standards. We have yet to see any accountability from Nigeria for the December 2015 Zaria massacre by government forces or for the apparently accidental air bombing this January of the Iran refugee camp in which over 200 people were killed. First and foremost, the U.S. should prioritize assisting Nigerian military with the necessary training including human rights training, improved intelligence, and targeting capabilities and the ability to conduct an integrated military operation to combat the Boko Haram threat. Given the Iran's incident, I do not see how we can be confident that the precision-guided munitions and new aircraft provided to the Nigerian military will not be involved in future accidental civilian casualties. I encourage the state and defense departments to formulate a comprehensive strategy to address the core weaknesses in the Nigerian military so that we may better assist them in their fight against Boko Haram. I hope you can provide me, the witnesses, with assurances that such strategy is underway. I would also like to hear details how U.S. security assistance is being used to support U.S. foreign policy and security objectives in the Middle East, including the resolution of the current internal GCC dispute and to promote the political resolution of the Yemen conflict. I applaud the leadership of our chairman on that issue. Finally, I understand the Department of State wants to move lethal small arms and light weapons off the U.S. munitions list to the Department of Congress, uh, Commerce, an action that will effectively remove these sales from congressional oversight. I am deeply concerned about that. The proposal includes semi-automatic pistols, assault weapons, and even military sniper rifles. As you know, I raised concerns about two proposed small arm sales over the last year the sale of pistols to the Turkish bodyguards, and 27,000 assault rifles to the Philippine National Police, which continues to summarily execute its own civilians. If these weapons go to commerce, the Congress and this committee will lose all oversight. Had this proposal been done earlier, both of these sales could have gone through. I, along with Senators Feinstein and Leahy, recently sent a letter to the Secretary of State opposing this unwise move. I also propose an amendment to the NDAA to maintain congressional oversight and, and disapproval, and I may pursue this measure in other legislative vehicles. So Mr. Chairman, I think we have a lot to talk about today. It's certainly one of the principal responsibilities of this committee, and I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Well, thank you for
0: those comments. Uh, we, uh, you see us looking around, we're looking for an 11th Senator. Um, and so I think Okay, it's my understanding one senator's in the back and he'll step in, so if you could, I'd like to adjourn the hearing briefly and start the business meeting and hopefully move out, uh, actually we have our 11th here. Business meeting, the Foreign Relations meeting will come to order. We consider a number of nominations today. I want to thank my colleague for helping the committee work through these nominations in an appropriate fashion and to allow us to take these steps forward. Senator Cardin, do you have any comments you'd like to make?
1: Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, thank you. Uh, working with our staff and all the members of our committee, I support all these nominees. I, I do want to make just a very brief comment about uh, Mr. Huntsman, government Huntsman, uh, the ambassador to nominee to, to Russia. Uh, we, we listened to a lot of nominees before this committee, and a lot of them are very well qualified, and certainly uh, uh, Governor Huntsman is one of those individuals that's very well qualified, but few have, have, have answered the questions with the clarity that he did and his commitment to carry out the type of uh, strength for our values and our relationship with Russia. So I'm enthusiastically supporting his nominee and hope that we can get him to to Moscow as soon as possible.
0: I couldn't agree more. I thought it was an outstanding testimony, one of the best we've heard, although we've heard numbers of very good ones, and uh, I look forward to him being in Moscow. Any other comments? What I'd like to ask then is that we entertain a motion to approve all of the nominations unblocked by voice vote. Uh, if anyone wants to register a negative, they're they're glad to do, they're able to do so. But I'd like uh, a motion to uh, unblock, to move the Honorable John Huntsman to be ambassador to Russia, Mr. Wes Mitchell to be the assistant secretary for European and Eurasian affairs, Mr. Justin Sibirel to be ambassador to by Rain, Mr. Stephen Dowd to be the U.S. Director of African Development Bank. It's been moved. Is there a second? All in favor, say aye. aye. Opposed? Anyone want to be recorded as a negative? Uh, with that, uh, that'll complete our, mi- our committee business. We ask unanimous consent that staff be authorized to make technical and conforming changes. Without objection, so ordered. And with that, without objection, the committee will stand adjourned. From the business meeting, we'll now move to the. Hearing our first witness is acting assistant secretary for political and military affairs Tina Kadenow from the State Department. We thank you for being back before us. Look forward to your testimony. Our second witness is Mr. Todd Harvey, acting assistant secretary of defense for strategy, plans and capabilities in the Office of Secretary of Defense. Our third witness is the Gen- is General Charles Hooper. Director of the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. We want to thank all of you for being here. If you could summarize your testimony in about five minutes without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. And if you would just begin in the order introduced, we'd appreciate it. Again, thank you.
2: Thank you very much. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, distinguished members of the committee. It is my honor and privilege to come before the committee today to discuss the processes and the methods through which the U.S. government provides security sector assistance to our partners overseas. I'm particularly grateful to be joined in this discussion by my colleagues and my friends, Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy, Plans, and Capabilities, Todd Harvey, and Lieutenant General Hooper from the Defense Security Cooperation Agency. The security assistance effort is a U.S. government-wide endeavor As such, the Department of State interacts collaboratively each and every day with the Department of Defense in order to formulate and implement critical aspects of our assistance policy. We also work together with you, the U.S. Congress, and notably with the members and the staff of this august committee. Security assistance is, in the end, a tool of foreign policy, and the committee's oversight of that assistance is both welcomed and deeply appreciated by the State Department as an essential element of effective foreign policy making. Finally, although not part of our U.S. government apparatus per se, we work exceptionally closely with our foreign partners, with whom we cultivate a critical set of relationships and whose growing military and defense capability matters from the standpoint of achieving vital U.S. national security objectives, whether encountering terrorism, deterring aggression by our mutual adversaries overseas, or pushing back against other emergent threats. Though it's now some years ago, President Reagan's 1982 national security strategy made the clear and very compelling case that security assistance programs are one of the most cost-effective means that we have of enhancing the security of the United States. Those words, I would argue, are as true today as they were back in 1982, although the statutes and the processes through which American security assistance is carried out have changed significantly since that time. Since 2001, in particular, we've seen a reorientation of U.S. security assistance towards addressing specific threats, often construed in a largely military-related construct. For example, funds and authorities have been aimed at helping our allies and friends address security challenges in Eastern Europe, in North Africa, and the Maghreb, in the South China Sea, and elsewhere. But at its core, security assistance is and must remain an element of our larger foreign policy. It should be regarded as an important, but by no means exclusive, tool in our toolkit of measures as we think about the proper balance of goals and objectives in any country or region of the world. Given the unquestioned relationship between security assistance and foreign policy, the Department of State must continue to play a crucial role in the provision and the coordination of such assistance across the U.S. government. State works, I hope, diligently to ensure that all security sector assistance strategically advances our foreign policy objectives that it advances U.S. goals in light of broader diplomatic and defense relationships, that everything the many and varied entities of the U.S. government are doing in the foreign security sector advances a single coherent strategy, that any investments we make in foreign security forces advance both security and political purposes, that such efforts take into account the political balance between civil and military institutions in the recipient country, that they're based on mutual enduring interests between our countries and that they do not cause long-term unintended effects in the country or in the region. That's certainly the case as we go about the business of implementing the State Department's Title 22 authorities. It's equally the case, however, as we fulfill the State Department's congressionally mandated roles of coordination concurrence, and joint planning and development with regard to the Title X authorities that fall under the purview of the Department of Defense. That includes signally, as the Chairman mentioned, the new Section 333 authority that was mandated by the FY17 NDAA. Section 333 stipulates specifically in legislation that assistance should not only be provided with the concurrence of the Secretary of State but also be jointly formulated by the two departments. While we had certainly made some strides in that direction previously with the cooperation of our DOD colleagues, Section 333 marks a significant step forward from where we have been before. I believe this is a trend that will become even more critical in a time of resource challenges but it makes sense from any standpoint as we seek to ensure the greatest efficiency and effectiveness possible for our U.S. security assistance, in essence, to get the greatest bang for our assistance buck. There's no question that this is both where the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense want us to go. Indeed, at the direction of our two secretaries, we have now established a new State DoD Security Sector Assistance Steering Committee to oversee an intensification of enhanced joint planning. I co-chair this committee together with Todd here to my right, and the committee is now engaged in developing a process for fiscal year 2018 military assistance planning that will enable state and DOD to validate our security assistance requirements in keeping with our administration's priorities, to look carefully at how best to optimize DOD Section 333 military assistance and state FMF resources towards that end, to leverage each department's expertise and authorities, and to reinforce our respective requests to the Congress. In the longer term, we hope to strategically integrate state and DOD planning and resourcing processes for an even wider range of security assistance efforts, including by synchronizing our budget requests and rationalizing and refining the use of each department's authorities. I want to thank you again for taking up this absolutely essential issue and finding the time today to address it thoughtfully. I can't stress enough how appreciative I am for the tremendous partnership and the goodwill of the two gentlemen sitting beside me here today, as well as of many of your staff who so patiently work through these very complex issues together with us. I ask that my written statement, as you said, be accepted for the record, and I very much look forward to your questions.
0: Thank you very much, Mr.
3: Harvey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of the committee. appreciate the opportunity to appear before you here today with my colleagues from State Department and Defense Security Cooperation Agency. As you underscored at the outset, the Department of Defense conducts a broad range of security assistance activities globally. DoD authorities and resources in the security assistance sphere have expanded to meet new and evolving security challenges over the past 10 to 15 years, certainly since the first DoD Train and authority, the original Section 1206 was passed by Congress in 2005. Even as DOD's direct involvement in the security assistance arena has increased, the Defense Department has sought to work closely with our State Department counterparts to identify, formulate, and implement partner security capacity building programs. The Department of Defense strongly endorses and supports State Department's leading role in not only setting the administration's course in foreign policy, but defining the shape and purpose of our U.S. foreign assistance efforts, including security assistance initiatives. No official outside the State Department has been stronger, have been a stronger proponent for reinforcing states' primacy in performing these roles and having adequate resources to execute them than Secretary of Defense Mattis. He recognizes more than most that success in addressing the nation's threats requires an integrated team effort where DODs and states' resource allocation processes are tightly linked and mutually reinforcing. Most DD security assistance programs are bounded by statutory obligations to jointly develop and plan their activities in conjunction with the State Department and to secure Secretary of State concurrence before implementing them. The Department of Defense recognizes the importance, even the essential imperative, of conducting business in this way. In our government, no department has the luxury of pursuing uncoordinated efforts, especially given finite resources and growing threats. While it may not have always been so, I'd venture to say that currently all DoD security assistance programs are shaped and approved at some level, and often at multiple levels, by the State Department, from the country team to the regional functional bureaus at Maine State to the Secretary himself. One factor to keep in mind as we consider the U.S. security assistance enterprise, DoD should not replicate the functions of the State Department and vice versa. While some overlap in authorities and resources provides useful flexibility in tackling difficult security threats, the two departments cannot and should not seek to recreate or mirror each other's uh, security assistance programs exactly. DoD and the State Department can work toward the same objectives and ends, but contribute to those ends through different ways or lines of effort that reflect their distinct histories, missions, and capabilities. Many of DoD's activities have grown out of pressing operational needs identified by commanders on the ground, which complement but differ from the broader political and diplomatic imperatives that often inform State Department security assistance activities. Those distinctions have admittedly blurred on the margins over the years, but can still be seen in the underlying rationale for core programs for each department. In the past two years, DOD has worked closely with its oversight committees to reform the way uh, we approach security assistance by consolidating authorities, combining resources, pursuing workforce reform, and improving evaluation efforts. Why is this important? Because it infuses uh, DOD efforts with greater discipline, helping guard against mission creep, and giving us the tool to identify and jettison ineffectual projects as soon as possible. These efforts also allow DOD to speak with a more unified voice in collaborating with State Department, so that we can ensure that DOD security assistance actors adhere to guidance resulting from collective decisions made at senior levels of the two departments. As uh, Ambassador Caden now indicated, a tangible marker of the commitment to work even more closely together uh, uh, is represented by Secretary Madison, and Secretary Tillerson's uh, decision and direction that. The two departments form and regularly convene a Security Sector Assistance Steering Committee uh, that sets security assistance priorities in this field and synchronizes our investments to ensure that we don't duplicate efforts on one hand, nor inadvertently create gaps or seams between our programs on the other. Finally, I would simply reiterate that DOD is committed to working productively and harmoniously with State Department in this space. DOD has no desire nor intent to supplant State because we recognize that the multidimensional challenges we face, where security, governance, stabilization, and development all intermingle, require the full and integrated efforts of both departments if we are to succeed in achieving our security goals globally. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. stand by for your
0: questions. Thank you very much. Lieutenant General.
4: Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of the committee, I'm pleased to be here today to share my thoughts on the role of the Defense Security Cooperation Agency, or DSCA, in the management, execution, and reform of security cooperation. As you know, security cooperation includes a wide range of activities, such as transfers of defense articles and services, military-to-military exercises, ministerial advising, and train and equip programs using both Title X and Title XXII authorities to deliver a full spectrum of capabilities to our partners. DSCA has traditionally focused on the execution of Title 22 authorized programs such as foreign military sales, or FMS, funded by partner nations themselves, and foreign military financing funded by the Department of State. As a result of the legislative mandates in the fiscal year 2017 National Defense Authorization Act, however, DSCA is now responsible for implementing broader supervision of Title 10 security cooperation programs that are funded and executed by the Department of Defense, such as train and equip, humanitarian assistance, and defense institution building, to name but a few. DSCA plays a critical role in the nexus of diplomacy, policy, and program execution, working closely with our counterparts throughout DOD, in particular, OSD policy, uh, and also working with the interagency, and especially with the Department of State colleagues in Ambassador Cadenow's bureau, and of course, the members of Congress and their staffs. In this role, we aim to align and integrate policy and operational requirements to provide innovative security cooperation solutions that benefit both our foreign partners and the United States. As Ambassador now and Mr. Harvey have noted, our programs build relationships that directly support U.S. security interests, develop allied and partner military capabilities, and provide U.S. forces with peacetime and contingency access. It is important to note, though, this access is not just geographical. It is an opportunity to build personal relationships which underpin our national security and foreign policy. One of my main focus areas at DSCA is to ensure we continue to cultivate effective and transparent relationships, not only between our defense and state counterparts, but with partner nations, private industry, and other influencers throughout the security cooperation process. Over the past few years, in close collaboration with OSD policy and the State Department, DSCA has begun to implement a robust set of initiatives addressing security cooperation challenges, in particular those associated with foreign military sales. Today, our partners are expecting more deliveries on accelerated timelines, and international competition in the defense trade is increasing. The majority of FMS cases are shepherded through the process relatively quickly. A small number, however, may take more time as the interagency and Congress engage in a deliberate review to ensure that the necessary statutory and policy criteria are met. Despite this, the United States remains the global security cooperation partner of choice. We deliver not only the most effective defensive systems to our partners, but we also ensure a total package approach that includes the provision of training, maintenance, sustainment, to achieve a full spectrum capability. While improvements to the FMS process are necessary, they are not sufficient to make certain that we best utilize all of the security cooperation tools at our disposal. The FY17 NDAA put forth a number of significant reforms to enhance flexibility, transparency, oversight, and management of programs and resources, professionalize the security cooperation workforce, and improve the alignment of security cooperation activities with defensive strategies. Together with the FMS improvement initiatives, these new authorities provide us with a unique opportunity to transform security cooperation into a more strategic U.S. national security tool. Work on these reforms is well underway, and we must continue to harmonize our efforts across DOD as well as the interagency. We must allow for open dialogue respecting all perspectives while at the same time taking advantage of the momentum we have to achieve the reform mandates in a timely manner. For the last 70 years, security cooperation has been the pillar of U.S. foreign policy. We must not, however, rest on our laurels. Today, the convergence of congressional mandates with the Department's emphasis on strengthening our partners is a call to action. We must seize this opportunity to fortify our status as a security cooperation partner of choice. Thank you.
0: Thank you all for your testimony. With that, I'll turn to Senator Cardin to begin questions.
1: Well, again, thank you for being here. Thank you for your service. Uh, And it's certainly encouraging to hear your conversations about how the collaborative process is working. I want to focus, if I might, on how you're using that collaborative uh, um, efforts and programming to deal with advancing uh, human rights. Uh, The Congress at times put conditionalities on our uh, security assistance programs. We're obviously, we're pretty specific as to what we expect before the release of funds. But can you tell me specifically where your strategies are in using our security assistance to make specific advancements in human rights in the countries in which we're partnering
2: with? Sorry. Senator, I think the way I would approach that is by saying, and again, um, you know, I, I can't stress this enough from my vantage point, having done this, this particular job for now almost a year and a half. Um, the reason that I feel so strongly about the role of the State Department, I think my colleagues would agree, although I don't want to speak for them, is for per- precisely the reason that you just outlined, because as I indicated in my opening remarks, we need to bring a holistic view of all of our foreign policy objectives into a discussion of any potential arms sale that we are about to make. Um, The way we do that is, generally speaking anyway, through the State Department. That is our writ, that is our mandate. I believe strongly, and I think my colleagues at Defense would would say the same, that even they know very clearly that we must integrate human rights and those concerns into our consideration of these sales, simply because um, it's not just the impact they will have in the recipient country. It's a function of, again, do we want to see the same threats emerge, for example, with regard to countering violent extremism or uh, you know, with countering terrorism, you don't want to see the same problems emerge over and over again as a function of the very assistance that we are. Well,
1: providing. we're dealing with a lot of countries. Uh, can you give us me some specific examples of where we have specific strategies to advance human rights?
2: I think in almost any country that we're talking about, uh, you raised several in your opening remarks. With all of those countries, we are very alert to how the specifics of the arms sales that we contemplate. So, what are we
1: doing in Nigeria concerning the? Uh, Nigerian forces in their way that they conduct their campaign uh, for civilian losses?
2: Well, uh, without commenting on the specific sale itself, because we haven't yet gone through the process of notification, I would say um, we are contemplating uh, the full range of effects that we might have, again, if we pursue that sale. I believe strongly that we've um, we've had a very robust conversation with Nigerian government on the importance of human rights, observing human rights, and specifically in the area of concern uh, in northeastern Nigeria. Um, I think you've heard from the highest level of the State Department, and I can only reiterate it here, our commitment to keep doing that, to continue to have that dialogue, and it will be, as I said, featured very strongly I, I think, in any I consideration. I think the CL
1: has been notified. I noticed, I could be wrong, but I think it has. Uh, what, what I'm finding what works is when you have specific accountab- specific standards you expect them to comply with. doesn't have to be announced. doesn't have to be broadcast. But you have to have ways of judging progress. I haven't seen that. So I'm going to ask if you would reply in writing to me. Absolutely. As to the strategies in the countries that we're dealing with. Uh, what are our objectives and the discussions that are taking place. If it has to be done in a classified setting, I'm more than happy to do it in a classified setting. But I, I am concerned that I don't see that commitment uh, as, as definitively as I want. I understand the overall issues, but as definitively as I think we need to make it. Certainly in Nigeria is a country of major concern and interest.
3: Uh, Senator, could I add that uh, from a defense support standpoint, as part of our NDA reforms, we did have, for the first time, provisions in our law for training and equip programs that we have to um, incorporate human rights training for any of the forces that we we actually train aground, which is a a shift, a significant shift for us, not just lip service, but that has to be real training so they understand the the importance of abiding by human rights standards.
1: I appreciate that, and uh, there, there are many specific examples. I hope that we'll be able to share. Uh, I want to get to one. I, you, you, you all mentioned Section 333 and compliance with that. Directive from Congress, that's a minimum standard. I would hope that there is a, a closer relationship than just complying asking. with the congressional mandate. Uh, tell us what type of cooperation are we seeing in State Department with Department of Defense on issues such as Ukraine security assistance or the special operations counterterrorism or irregular warfare activities? Do we have that same type of close consultation and input from the State Department?
3: Uh, Senator, y- yes, we do. I mean, at, at multiple levels from the working level up to the, the principals in, in the White House, we do have the uh, the regular and active exchanges to ensure that we have a, a, a common understanding of what the challenge is and help develop you know common solutions for how we approach those. So I, I would say that level of interaction um, has been sort of instituted, if you will, beyond just what has been mandated from Congress.
2: I can only echo that. I think we have exceptionally close cooperation, especially on the issues that you mentioned, uh, and there's no daylight really between the two departments on those things. Thank you, thank
5: you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, for Mr. Senator Cardin's reference, in Africa, we have used through Millennium Challenge, we have used conditions on human rights and labor law as conditions on qualifying for participation in MCC very effectively. So your your question is is on this is important because it should be the same thing for security and defense as well. And when you make those conditions, that makes the host country a part of the decision. Ms. Cadenell, um section 333 of NDAA, I should know this, you referred to it, I did not so did General Hooper a minute ago. Was that a byproduct or brought about because of what happened at Benghazi?
2: No, sir, I, I mean, I think that the genesis of it, and I, again, I can't speak to what the, the, um, those that put it together actually um, uh, were aiming to, to a, a accomplish, although I have to say that we very much stand behind it. We, we think it's a great effort. Um, the idea, I think, was to try and do what we all know has to be done now, and that is uh, the State Department has a wide swath of funds and, and authorities available to it to accomplish certain things in the security arena. Defense Department increasingly now also. In fact, we have roughly the same amount of money under management, depending on how you look at it. That's an enormous, uh, you know, sort of charge to us, if you will, to ensure that we are doing whole of government work. We can't be doing State Department efforts and DOD efforts. It doesn't work that way. Um, Our partners don't look at it that way, nor should they. Um, we should be aiming to have a, an approach that not just 333. I mean, our hope, again, as I said, is to broaden this. Uh, and in fact, in practice, we do it for other authorities. But the idea is to bring forward a, a process that is that identifies our priorities right at the outset, uh, which we are doing right now in the steering committee that we discussed for a whole range of priority countries decide what makes sense for us whether with regard to state authorities and funds or with uh, DOD authorities and funds and how do we ensure that those are complementary so that we're not working to cross purposes, we're not duplicating effort, we're not doing anything and that we are providing what we need to both for our partners but also for, I mean, primarily for U.S. national security interests. That's the idea.
5: In your testimony, you said states should not only see that the DOD concurs, but as part of the formulation of the game plan. Is that correct?
2: Yes. I, I mean, I believe that, first of all, we, we regard state concurrence as really an essential element because it gives us that visibility and that ability to say, at the end of the day, that critical foreign policy aspects, like human rights, are being adequately addressed. But I think even more than that, what we want is to ensure, as we are doing with 333, that we're starting all the way back at the beginning. Because if, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, a program comes to us, the DOD has already formulated, and they've gone through a long process, and it's very arduous, and it's not easy to do, and the commanders, the combatant commanders have had their say, and if they come to us at the end of all of that, and we don't have a full understanding of how they got there in the first place, there may be unintended consequences, there could be things that happen that, you know, again, from a budgetary standpoint, uh, where we may have, there will be implications down the road for the State Department. To us, it seems as though the more productive way to be doing this, again, is to be looking at the outset at how do we bring all this together. So 333 is, if you will, sort of the the, the the most robust effort we have undertaken at something uh, that's this important. And, and I would argue it's that important, but of course, again, my colleague at DOD can speak to it as well.
3: Senator, I would, I would agree with everything Ambassador now said. It, it, it only makes sense to have both State Department and DOD involved at the front end of development of any any project, because it's it's too late if we wait to throw it over the transom. Because we may be far afield from what the you know foreign policy direction would be from State Department. So their involvement at the ground level is is absolutely essential. The, just to answer your question on the origin of 333, um, essentially before 333, we had a, we had multiple number of authorities related to individual strands of activity and training and equip counter WMD counterterrorism counter narcotics border control. What we, what we recognize in the real world is those problems don't come in sort of stovepipe fashion. They overlap in many ways. And so what we did was, uh, with the help of our oversight committees, is create an authority that can address all those in combination as a, as a collective whole as they appear in the real world.
5: The reason I brought up the Benghazi situation, and that's a sad chapter for all of us, and I'm not trying to revisit a sad chapter, but I want to make sure we don't have a second chapter sometime in the future. And when you talk about co- coordination and planning, do you feel like at DOD and at, at the Department of State that we are better positioned today for our, the security of our embassies across the world and have re- plans ready so that we can get backup help to our, our ambassadors should they need it?
2: I'm, I'm, obviously, I'm not the responsible individual at the State Department, uh, but I will tell you, I mean, I feel more confident and certainly I believe that um, you know, our, our department's highest leadership would tell you that this is a huge priority for them. Uh, The secretary starts every meeting that he convenes with, uh, you know, upper level management in the State Department by talking about security issues.
3: Thank
5: you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator King.
6: Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to the witnesses. Um, Your written testimony and the questions of my colleagues have been helpful on this issue of trying to figure out how to streamline, consolidate, make what we do in security assistance more effective. I wanna ask a real practical question about a a concern I have right now. The results are not yet in on the uh, referendum that was held in Kurdistan yesterday in northern Iraq about the uh, non-binding referendum around independence, but the likely results are gonna be a very strong support expressed in that referendum. The security assistance we currently provide to the Kurds and is is sizable and it it is routed through the Baghdad government, Um, I think it's probably maybe about $2.2 billion in the last two appropriations, which are combined to Iraq for security assistance that can be used by the central government, the tribal leaders, or Kurdistan. How to, How might, as we're you know contemplating how to do security assistance, we have to deal with our own internal challenges, but also a situation like the Kurds, who have been good partners, that's gonna create a potential challenge. How are state and defense contemplating Uh, this, if if Baghdad reacts negatively to the, to the referendum result and tries to block or slow down um, assistance passing through Baghdad to Erbil, Uh, the Kurds have been, you know, huge partners of ours in the anti-ISIS battle. Can you talk a little bit about DOD and State Department perspectives on that referendum and how that might affect security assistance in the region? And that's the only question I'm going to have, so I just, now I'll just let you all tackle that
2: one. Thank you, Senator. Um, it's funny because I ran into my colleague, Brett McGurk, in the parking garage just yep. as I was coming over here, uh, who is by far better positioned to answer some of the specific questions that you just asked. Um, look, I think we've made clear that we find it unfortunate that the, um, you know, the, the Kurdish authorities have chosen at this moment to undertake this particular referendum. Uh, we regard the authorities in Baghdad as being, um, you know, and, and we regard the, the integrity of Iraq as being quite important. Um, I will defer probably the questions on you know what the implication of some of the security assistance issues may be until we see what the outcome of all this is. Mm-hmm. Clearly we are having a conversation, we are always having that conversation from the policy vantage point, not just on that specific issue, but I will say more, more broadly on Iraq issues writ large. Uh, just this past week I was dealing with another issue on um, tanks and so forth, which I won't get into in this setting, but mm-hmm. we're happy to brief you on those things too. Um, you know, look, these are big issues. The government of Iraq, we, we feel, uh, you know, it's incredibly important to support them in any way we can. That said, there are gonna be um, you know, issues related to what they can afford, what the sustainability of some of that assistance down the road is going to be, how they apportion it, what the implications of the referendum and some of the associated other political issues may be. There's lots of questions associated with all of this. So rather than get into the minutia of all that, I think we'd be happy to give you a, a more full briefing if you ask for mm-hmm. it, we'd be more than pleased.
6: Thank sure. thank you, how about from the DOD? I, I,
3: I think Senator, mm-hmm. echo everything that Ambassador Cadenow said, I'd say our, our Near-term focus is and has to remain on the, the counter-ISIS challenge, and so minimizing the the complications or distractions from that central focus, I think, is is our priority right now from a from a DOD standpoint. And, and we can get you greater detail on sort of the implications of the the vote in, in Kurdistan um, after this session, sir. Do, do
6: Do you believe the pendency of the referendum? Could you Could you see any degree to which the pendency of the referendum? tangibly harmed the anti-ISIS fight?
3: Uh, th- theoretically, but I, I think we're, uh, we are working collectively as a, as a as a US government to ensure that all the, the primary actors on the ground sort of stay focused on that on that primary challenge. So I, we will do everything we can to prevent that. And I, th- and I think I have confidence we'll be able to do that.
6: General Hooper, do you have anything to add on that, on this issue? No, sir. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. See the rest of my
7: time.
8: Thank you, Senator Kane. Senator Young. Thank you. Uh,
7: Ambassador Cadenow, I want to ask you a number of questions uh, about the le- legal authorities that inform your office's work, your work, and uh, circumscribed as well. So uh, to begin here, according to Department of State's website, in addition to undertaking a legal review of each of the proposed arms transfer deals that uh, comes before your office and third-party transfers. The Political-Military Affairs Bureau also applies the conventional arms transfer policy laid out in Presidential Policy Directive 27. Uh, is that correct? Yes. So that policy has presumably been applied to arms transfers to Saudi Arabia, is that correct? Yes. Okay. That policy requires the administration to take into account a, a number of criteria, correct? Absolutely. So I have that, the, those criteria in front of me right here. One of the criterion is that state, among other things, must take into account the, quote, human rights record of the recipient. Agreed? Absolutely. Okay. Another criterion of this policy is you say, in effect, uh, that uh, state must consider, quote, the likelihood that the recipient would use the arms to commit human rights abuses or serious violations of international humanitarian law or identify the United States with human rights abuses or serious violations of international humanitarian law. Agreed? Yep. I'll also note that Section 502B, which you're likely familiar with, of the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961, limits security assistance to a country which engages in a consistent pattern of gross violations of internationally recognized human rights unless the President certifies in writing to the Speaker of the House, to the Chairman of this Committee, and others that extraordinary circumstances exist. Uh, Ambassador, has such a certification been submitted to this Congress to uh, to transfer arms to Saudi Arabia?
2: Well, again, um, it depends on, I guess, what we're talking about and at what time frame and so forth. In the past, of course, we have made arms transfers to Saudi I'm Arabia. I'm talking
7: about the arms transfers that have occurred in, in recent months uh, during this Congress uh, from the United States of America uh, to Saudi Arabia.
2: In the past, yes, we have made some of those transfers.
7: Including this most recent arms transfer?
2: uh, It's a yes
7: or no question. Yes, sir. All right, thank you. So uh, as acting assistant secretary of the Bureau of Political and Military Affairs responsible for implementing this policy, state has gone ahead, as you said, and consistent with the conventional arms transfer policy as well as section 502B, which I've invoked, what is state's assessment regarding Saudi Arabia's actions in Yemen? That is, has Saudi Arabia used U.S. weapons in Yemen to commit human rights abuses or serious violations of international humanitarian law, yes or no?
2: Senator, uh, we've had a chance in the past to come before the committee and, and the members and the staff to talk about some of this, not all of which I can discuss in this setting, but you asked the question and I will tell you, we have expressed concerns to the Saudi government and we've had the conversation with them on many of these issues. And indeed, uh, you know we are trying to address them as we contemplate any sales to Saudi Arabia. So
7: you're in charge. You're in charge of the office that's supposed to take into account under our laws these criteria. I know it's a multi-factor test, as the lawyers say. You balance the various factors against Correct. one another, so uh, it's not a binary test. Um, so it is possible that there were human, vi- human rights violations, violations of internationally respected human rights law, and, um, uh, and, and you're not foreclosing that possibility here today. Is that correct?
2: I think what I'm saying is that we have had that conversation with the Saudis, and we've had the conversation- Are you
7: foreclosing it?
2: Are we foreclosing- Are the- you
7: foreclosing the possibility that uh, human rights violations uh, have occurred?
2: No, in fact, I think the Saudis themselves have have indicated that in the past that they have done some things that they find uh, problematic, and that they are trying to address some of those issues.
7: Okay, Ambassador, thank you for indulging all these questions. On June 28, at my direction, my staff asked uh, the Department of State for an advisory legal opinion with respect to Saudi Arabia's refusal to permit the delivery of cranes to Hodeida, the major port uh, uh, in Yemen. Uh, we we think that that may very well constitute a violation of customary international humanitarian law rule 55. That's the uh, international legal provision that prohibits uh, denying life-saving food or medicine into an area in furtherance of war aims. Uh, and, And so on September 18, almost three months later, my office was notified that State wasn't able to provide me with that advisory legal opinion. Can you, can you explain why State hasn't provided uh, me that legal uh, opinion or anyone on this committee, to my knowledge?
2: I'm sorry, Senator. I don't have the exact precise rationale for why that was not provided to you in a timely way. I will have to go back and ask and bring that answer to you.
7: Okay. Thank you for your indulgence. I'll just note uh, that I'll be submitting a question for the record related to uh, the excess defense articles, provisions, and the, and the transfer of Humvees. Uh, Lieutenant General Hooper, I'd be grateful for your timely response on, on that matter. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Young. Senator
5: Murphy.
9: Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you all for being here today. Um, let me follow up on the questions from Senator Young because I share uh, all of his concerns. Um, Yemen currently is the arguably the worst humanitarian catastrophe in the world uh, today, an epidemic of both famine and cholera uh, that the country has never seen before. And let me maybe take the conversation um, out of the weeds a little bit and ask a simple question to either you, uh, uh, Ms. Ka- Ms. Cadno, or you, Mr. Harvey. Um, what clear, explainable, definable concessions have we extracted from the Saudis with respect to the conduct of this war inside Yemen since the announcement or in coordination with the announcement of the biggest arms sale to Saudi Arabia celebrated by the uh, very high-profile visit of President Trump uh, to Riyadh earlier this year. Um, nothing has seemed to have changed there. The humanitarian catastrophe gets worse every single month. It does not get better. Senator Young and I have asked this very simple thing of the Saudis to let these cranes that the U.S. taxpayers paid for be delivered to hudaydah in order to more efficiently move uh, humanitarian relief into the country. None of that Uh, has uh, been addressed. So what specific concessions have we gotten from the Saudis with respect to the conduct of the war in Yemen as a result of the massive military aid? Um, And what role has State or Department of Defense played in that?
2: Well, uh, first of all, let me just again emphasize that I think we are um, deeply committed to uh, ensuring that the Saudis understand the importance, and the Saudis themselves have said they understand the importance of complying with the law on armed conflict. It's, it's essential, and who, they... they who, who
9: cares what they say?
2: Understood. Um, I think our, our judgment has been that engaging with them and providing them the means to actually effectuate some of that is the best way to go. Uh, so
9: specific examples.
2: You may recall that one of the, the largest pieces and one of the first things that we moved uh, towards notification after the, the announcement of the, the arms deal that you mentioned uh, was a $750 million training case to the Saudi armed forces, And that training case involved uh, a, a large component that was training specifically on the law of armed conflict. So it wasn't as though all we gave them was the means to pursue the conflict itself. We are trying to give them an understanding of how do you do that, because it's not so much about the weapons per se as it is the way you implement and utilize the weapons. Um, my colleagues at, at defense can probably speak more to that than I can. And in fact, we've had uh, a group of trainers that have now gone on the ground in the first, you know, for the first part of this uh, this training case that we notified um, to try and get that process underway. So we're very alive to it. The Saudis are alive to it. I, I recognize that you know the proof is in the pudding that they're going to have to show that those actions comport with what they say. Uh, that is what we are committed to doing with them.
9: Um, let me. Uh Listen, I I, I share Senator Young's concerns here. I think that our policy in Yemen has been an epic failure, and I understand the Saudis spend a lot of money coming up here and making promises about how they are going to change the conduct of this war. They have not, Uh, and they have refused to do very simple things that could alleviate the horror that exists in Yemen today. Um, And we as a country, these are my words, not anyone else's, are complicit in uh, many of the worst things that are happening there. Um, Let me ask you a broader question. Um, uh, So right now, as you mentioned, the capacity is split between DoD and state. Um, Moving from uh, a time uh, at the beginning of the uh, 2000s, when about 80% of this aid came through the Department of State. Um, Just explain to us why this capacity still needs to be split. Um, every military conflict that we are involved in overseas has a political root at the bottom of it. This isn't the 1800s when armies march against each other and there's a peace treaty. There's a political problem at the bottom of all of these military conflicts. So um, now that we are sort of in the process of of winding down the two biggest conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, why wouldn't we just return this capacity to the State Department? Why wouldn't we go back to 80% of this capacity in the State Department? Why split it half and half with defense and state.
2: Well, um, again, I think my colleague addressed some of this in his opening remarks. I mean, I think the judgment has been, and it's really, I can't speak to what Congress's intention was, but I think the idea was, because there are specific uh, train and equip type issues, operational issues, and the flexibility and the, the speed with which a lot of this is necessary to deploy, made it extant. And, and because the nature of some of these threats seem to be, I think, both emergent and, and urgent, Uh, and also dealt with uh, at least in part through military means. Our argument has been along the lines of what you just said that it all has a political component and therefore as we progress down this road even if that money is allocated or those authorities are allocated to DOD, the State Department should retain an essential role at least of concurrence and again arguably from our vantage point and, and as Todd has indicated you know, the earlier the better in that process, frankly, from a joint formulation standpoint, a joint development standpoint. It makes sense for all the reasons that you have articulated, and particularly in understanding your concerns on Saudi Arabia on any issue, it makes sense for the State Department to be at the outset of that process. You can bring those concerns to the State Department. We will be responsive. Um, it, is, it is a holistic effort. It should be a holistic effort. There are some things DOD does better than we do, and there are some things that we do better, I would argue, and there are different purposes oftentimes for those fundings. FMF is designed to accomplish um, addressing long-term capability gaps on the part of our military partners overseas. Some of the authorities that DOD has are far more targeted. They, are, they need to be moved out the door quicker. Um, they're not set up necessarily for long-term development of capability building. We need to, though, think about all of that as we plan forward. You can't just do the one or the other. You need to understand that entire array of authorities and then try and bring them together, and particularly if we're going to face a, a, you know, increasing resource challenges, which I think we probably will. So that's the, that, I think, is the rationale for doing it in a way that is respectful of DOD's abilities, respectful of our particular expertise, but also brings it together in a way that makes sense for all of us. And for you,
10: I hope. Okay, thank you, sure. Senator Rubio. Thank you. I want to focus a little bit on the uh, international narcotics and law enforcement uh, funding, in particular. What I we've seen this extraordinary rise in the production of coca cocaine in Colombia, and we know that's going to be transited here, uh, primarily through land bridge through Central America, but but potentially through air routes as well through the Caribbean region, <clears throat> and at the heart of the challenges facing El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras in particular is the role that these uh, transnational groups play <clears throat> on the ground and each has struggled in its own way to confront it. Um, I'm most familiar of the three with the Honduran efforts. Um, and um, and obviously I also look at the Colombian model of assistance over the years as something people have pointed to as a model of success. And in fact, in many ways, the Colombians have become uh, force multipliers for us. They're now on the ground in, in, uh, in those countries in Central America providing assistance, although there's some concern about some recent decisions they've made with their own program, uh, vis-a-vis the, the peace process there that some attribute to the rise in cocaine production. So my first question is uh, just an analysis of where we are in terms of how that overlays with our policies in the region, because ultimately the, uh, one of the, I think, most compelling arguments is that the U.S. southern border doesn't really begin on the Mexican border. It starts much sooner than that in places like Guatemala and, and the like. So three, three quick uh, opportunities here to discuss. Number one, um, how would you assess the progress of those programs and the, the, where they stand today? Obviously, each country has different challenges in, in the Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. Number two, do we believe that the capacity, even the increased capacity of these nations, is quickly going to be overwhelmed by the massive amount of cocaine that needs to be moved over the next number of years? And number three, the potential to, to to partner with the Mexican government, who has their own concerns about instability just south of them, and, and how those three things play out as in the interplay between the assistance we provide and our and our foreign policy aims for the region. I know that's a three-part question, but but they're all interrelated. So.
2: Well, I'll take a quick stab at at, uh, giving you an answer, although, again, I would have to just defer to some of my colleagues who deal both with international narcotics and law enforcement and also with with the Western Hemisphere affairs. But I I do think we're making progress. I I recognize the challenges that you've outlined. um, And I would also say, you know, again, as we look at the entire array of countries that we are assisting, we are looking at all the foreign policy elements, and that involves uh, human rights issues, other kinds of issues, governance issues and so forth. Um, but I do think with regard to the, the international narcotics effort, we are, we're making some progress. This is another area where I would argue, again, we have authorities and funding. Uh, DOD has authority and funding. It only makes sense for us to be, again, bringing those efforts together. Section 333 actually addressed some of those authorities, not all of them, but some of them. Uh, And that's another, I think, set of issues that we are now sitting down at a table trying to look at in terms of what we can do and what DOD can do, identify, again, some priority elements within our strategy to try and make sure that the resources, the proper resources are addressed uh, in those directions. By the way, you mentioned Columbia, just to to say, I mean, one of the things that I think is underappreciated sometimes is that we not only do security assistance writ large, what we do is stabilization. Um, and in support of the peace process, for example, in Colombia, the State Department is very active in terms of demining, removal of unexploded ordnance in some of the areas where the, the peace process has, um, has indicated they need that help. Uh, and um, we did a fair amount together with the Norwegian government to put in place a a donor effort that will uh, lend itself to that. So we're actually looking not just at the security assistance per se in terms of aiding the relevant uh, forces on the ground, it's also in support of a larger effort at stabilization that will then create an environment, we hope, in which these things will not reproduce themselves.
10: I guess the the only follow-up I would have on that is One of the issues we run into, uh, as we discuss these programs on an annual basis, is in many of these nations still uh, the military becomes the default law enforcement organism as opposed to traditional law enforcement, from a variety of different reasons. Um, And what, uh, how would you assess the where we stand in terms of capacity building for their own justice system? In essence, the training and equipping of police officers and other law enforcement officials, their court system, their systems of justice. uh, How does that? Generally, play out in the in the broader everything from prisons to prosecutors to yes. to uh, defense attorneys, for that matter. Uh, how do those things interplay? And what do we do to assist in that regard?
2: I, I can't agree with you more. I think my INL colleague uh, uh, Bill Brownfield, Ambassador Brownfield, would argue the same thing. I mean, this has to be a, a longer term approach, and it cannot simply be military focused. Uh, we we must do what we can to build rule of law throughout uh, you know throughout the countries of concern. Um, I think we're making some progress, I, I will tell you. But I, you know, it's not uniform, and I think we're going to have to work harder with them together in partnership. So that's the, it's a, it's a, it's a long-term problem, and we are not, uh, we're not there yet. Uh, that's for sure. But um, but we recognize the importance of everything you just said.
3: Senator, and, and part, me, uh, part of that equation is also uh, working with our uh, def- our defense ministry counterparts in these countries to understand the proper role of the military in a you know, in a uh, government and society led by civilians. And so helping them understand sort of their, their proper subordination, if you will, to civilian leadership is, is part of that equation that we have, um, DOD has programs that are dedicated to. Senator Booker.
11: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Ms. Cadena, I can I just start really quick on the sort of a surprise to me of the announcement that the chat has been included in the administration's travel ban? Um, And you mentioned Chad in your testimony. The White House itself stated that Chad is, and I quote, an important valuable counterterrorism partner to the United States. Uh, And the State Department itself in its report stated that the Chad government continues to be, to continue to prioritize counterterrorism efforts at the highest level. Uh, You know Chad's role in AFRICON. They're incredibly involved in counterterrorism efforts in the region. Uh, You talk about Flintlock in your testimony. It supports French-U.S. military deployments in the region. It's been critical in uh, efforts against Boko Haram. Uh, Chadian troops played a major role in in, uh, countering al-Qaeda's operations in Mali. Uh, They deploy over 1,000, I think about 1,400 troops. And and, and so I guess the specific questions I have is this designation just seems arbitrary to me. Uh, and if we have concerns about weak border security and screening capacity, uh, clearly uh, it, other countries facing similar challenges, Mali, Central African Republic, Niger, Nigeria, you know, why aren't they on the travel ban? And, and, and then Sudan, clearly uh, we have some significant issues. So I'm hoping you can shed some light on this for me. Uh, and I'm really curious that the State Department and the DOD have input into this decision and finally and again this is just press reports from this morning about the whiplash uh that uh the, the chad, uh, chad leaders uh like the president are having who are so influential and such critical partners um you know does this really in some ways undermine our multilateral efforts that have been so productive against al-qaeda and boko haram
2: I'd be happy to take the question. Um, I, I will be honest with you and, and tell you that I don't I can't give you a full uh, you know rationale sitting here this morning um, at least on this setting, but we'd be happy to give you I think more of the thinking on that. I will say though that as you indicated in your remarks, we do think of Chad as an important partner for us on CT efforts in a variety of ways. Uh, it is certainly my hope that none of that will will change. Uh, we are looking to I think be cooperative with Chad. Um, and whatever requirements uh, they can provide for us in order to um, you know, ameliorate or to address some of these issues, I'm quite confident they will work together with us in order to try and do. Um, but again, I will take the question, and I will happily uh, bring you back and answer.
11: So um, to the chairman and ranking member, um, you know, I have a lot of frustration when I hear responses that we'll get back to you. Um, Senator Paul and I wrote a letter Uh, to Secretary Tillerson in June expressing our deep disappointment about the administration's decision to proceed with the sale of arms, specifically the A-29 attack aircraft to the Nigerian government. Uh, We requested a briefing as well uh, uh, about the sale and uh, to understand how this determination was made. Um, We cited in that letter a lot of detail, lack of progress, the authorities... Uh, from authorities in Abuja about the government's investigation into the December 2015 uh, alleged massacre by soldiers of over 300 Shiite Muslims. Uh, You mentioned this, uh, 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 Senator Cardin, in your remarks. I mean, it's disturbing what we're seeing. We cited the incomplete investigation into the January 2017 attack on an IDP camp uh, in Iran uh, by the Nigerian Air Force, killed over again 200 refugees. Uh, as well as a lack of progress on a fair investigation into the 2014 killings by the Nigerian security forces of over 600 mostly um, uh, unarmed detainees, including children. Uh, we wrote, Senator Paul and I wrote, uh, that there continues to be additional allegations of corruption, abuse, misconduct throughout the Nigerian military. Uh, we, we asked in our letter that the State Department reconsidered the decision to sell attack uh, uh, at 829 to Nigeria uh, until some kind of reforms are put in place. And so I've sort of heard this before, uh, whether it is the questions are were asked by my bipartisan questions asked by my colleagues about what's going on uh, uh, in Yemen. Uh, uh, I've not been ensured that any of the reforms are be- uh, or safeguards are being put into place before these sales are made. And so I understand that there are new reports now of military equipment granted by the United States from MRAP vehicles provided for use against uh, Boko Haram that are being used in the southeast uh, and apparently to intimidate uh, uh, people agitating for independence. And so I really appreciate the the seeming willingness to be cooperative, uh, but we have a role to play. And, and, and I have growing frustrations. I know I'm new on this committee. I'm, I'm damn near sitting in the audience here so far in the end. But, but this is absolutely unacceptable for our role in accordance with the Constitution. And so I, I don't understand that we, I can't even get a briefing on this issue, whether it's in this context or another. I'm just looking for someone to give me actually information. Because according to the Constitution, the administration can't continue to engage in these kind of activities without our authorization. And and as Senator Murphy said, we're complicit in some of the most horrific things that are going on on the planet Earth right now by regimes who are not acting in in any way in accordance with our values as a country or interest for our national security. And you even alluded to the fact that we could be creating when it comes to terrorism the very problem we claim to be trying to to, to, to end. And so this is absolutely unacceptable to me that we allow Representative after representative come before this committee and make promises that we're going to get information or we're going to have hearings, and we get nothing in return. And, and I'm, I'm frankly fed up, and the consequences of the lack of information right now it, it is horrific what's going on in Sudan, what's going on in Yemen, what's going on in Nigeria. It is horrific what's going on to people who are craving freedom and looking to the United States. And so I just want to register my absolute frustration. And the responses here, no disrespect, are unacceptable when we get talk and not even a meeting, not even a briefing uh, that's any substance and answers the questions from from the United States Senators on both sides of the aisle. Thank you, Mr.
1: Mr. Mr. Chairman, if I I might uh, just want to share Senator Booker's frustration. Uh, As ranking member, I've had to exercise my authority to call the Secretary of State to get some of this information, when I should be getting it from the people who are directly involved in in making these policies. I've had less than satisfactory assurances in regards to commitments that I thought were previously made in regards to uh, arms sales of countries. So I would just urge our panelists who have the direct responsibility. If you believe that the legislative branch of government is, is part of this process, you need to do a much more effective job in communications, but more importantly, on living up to the broad statements that you are making with specific progress and goals that we are achieving to prevent these types of complicities in human rights violations of other countries.
8: Thank you, Senator Gordon I think, uh, again, just brings us back to the point of effectively managing a multi-billion dollar effort, uh, making sure it's organized managed properly. So thank you. Senator Merkley.
12: Okay, oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And um, Ambassador, as, as Secretary Tillerson reorganized the State Department, can you confirm for the committee that there's no there are no plans to move security assistance oversight? function of the Bureau of Political Military Affairs to the Department of Defense?
2: Um, Senator, not that I'm aware of, uh, but that's not to say, I mean, I don't have the full array of, of um, you know understandings that you're looking for, I think, with regard to what the final output of that redesign process will be. I believe the Deputy Secretary actually will be uh, coming up to, uh, to the Hill on the House side, I believe, in the next day or so, to be talking about some of that. So, but I mean, the State Department regards that role as an essential one, as we've described today, and I believe, as far as I can tell, anyway, that the upper levels of the State Department, including the Secretary, the Deputy Secretary, still feel that way.
12: Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, the, the administration has indicated it plans to provide lethal military assistance to the government of Ukraine, and there's a variety of, of views as to whether uh, that assistance either enables the government of Ukraine to more effectively uh, oppose the, the forces occupying eastern portion of the nation, or whether it, it triggers a, a Russian response at a, at a higher level, uh, leading to uh, greater bloodshed and, and uh, greater support for, for the forces that oppose the government of Ukraine. What's, what's your view of this?
2: Well, again, it's an active discussion, as you indicated. I think um, the policy has yet to be fully decided. Um, it is something that uh, our departments, our two departments are engaged in discussing right this minute, together with the White House. Um, and you know before the, the White House and the President make their decisions on this, I'd, I'd hesitate to take a position. Um, but I think again, there are considerations that you have outlined, and there are others as well that we have to look at in the entirety of these decisions. They are important decisions. And by the way, I was just to reference what uh, Senator Booker and and, uh, and the ranking member said. Um, at any moment, if you wish for a briefing on any particular issue, I am happy to provide it. I think the State Department is committed to that, as is my uh, as are my colleagues at DOD. And um, on Ukraine, the, I could offer the same. Um, but I think in this setting, it's a little hard to get into all of the, the back and forth. I would say, again, that the Ukrainians, we, we believe strongly that the Ukrainians are important Partners, friends of ours, and uh, we want to be sure that their defense is adequately taken care of.
12: I'll, ju- I'll just say my experience has been extremely frustrating with the Department of State, and when you say they are committed, those are at this point empty words. Uh, one of the things that occurred recently, this committee uh, considered a bill related to the uh, West Bank, and uh, we were promised a-, a briefing from the Department of State over basically the types of projects that were being undertaken, uh, both through nonprofits, nonprofits and through the Palestinian Authority, and the briefing was a complete fiasco. No information provided, despite the fact the committee was in the middle of wrestling with, with how to sustain uh, productive uh, activities on the West Bank uh, while, not, uh, while sending a very strong message uh, to the, the, uh, the PA about uh, their, their horrific a horrific policy of, of rewarding the families of those who commit acts of, of terrorism I mean that's just an an example and my committee members I think could each cite some other examples so it's important to follow up what the philosophy you just expressed with actual action uh, turning back to uh, the the Ukraine and mr harvey uh, the um, the the president of Ukraine uh, has called for UN uh, peacekeepers uh, to be in Eastern Ukraine. Uh, is is the United States uh, supportive of, of of that request,
3: Senator? I have to take that question. I I'm not in a position to answer on that right now.
12: Is there any sense? Uh, for any of the three of you that that request changes the dynamic in terms of whether we provide uh, military assistance to the Ukraine uh, government?
2: I think, Senator, we're looking at the entire array of issues as, uh, with regard to, to Ukraine. What, we, what we're hoping to see is fulfillment of the Minsk requirements. We are looking to be supportive of that process. As you know, we now have a special envoy uh, appointed by the State Department, Kurt Volker, who is uh, out there doing his his level best, uh, I think, to try and engage um, with his Russian counterparts and with others uh, on these very topics. It's an issue of real concern and uh, great interest to our secretary. And so with regard to the policy overall, I I can assure you of that. Uh, And as we contemplate whatever we will do with regard to security assistance, it will fit into that larger picture.
12: What are the forms of lethal military assistance that would best serve our goals of supporting the Ukrainian government while not provoking, if you will, Russian escalation.
2: I think that's the open question. I mean, that's what we're trying to. That grapple, is a
12: question. That's why I'm asking. Yes. it. What's no, your I understand.
2: Uh, we're looking at the various options, and I think what we're trying to decide again is what will serve the political purposes uh, most adequately. I don't have an answer for you now because because there is no actual decision. Lieutenant um, General
12: Cooper, yeah. would you like to comment on that?
4: Uh, Senator, it's fundamentally a, a policy question, I would defer to my, my colleagues to respond to
12: that. Well, it's a policy question in which military insights are certainly very relevant. I'm sure the military side is very engaged in that, and so what are your, what are your insights?
4: Well, I would, uh, as we do with each and every case where we assess what our partners might need and what might be appropriate, uh, we would follow the process we always do, and which we've articulated from the very beginning, which is to collaborate in a transparent uh, fashion, uh, in order to determine what is best appropriate concern uh, and what will best address both our our security objectives uh, and the overall policy objectives.
12: Mr. Harvey, when are we going to get a detailed uh, proposal of, of, of what what uh, best fulfills the administration's plans to provide lethal military support to the government of Ukraine?
3: I think as Ambassador now had indicated, Senator, that that is an issue that's uh, being debated at, at senior levels of the administration. I'm so glad it's
12: being debated. When are we on the committee going to to get, get insights from you all? Since we're not hearing any today.
3: Uh, as soon, as, I think, as we're uh, close to making a decision, I think would be the appropriate time to come over and and give you
12: uh, an update on what our any position sense of the timing on is. That? I'm sorry. Any sense of the timing on that? Um,
3: I, I don't have that for you right now. Thank you. Thank you,
8: Senator Merkley. And I'll make uh, my question um, uh, quick here. Uh, Just a a question of the Philippines. Could you describe to me, uh, the appropriate uh, witness, describe to me the assistance the United States is currently providing to the Philippines?
2: Um, We are providing an array. Actually, I should probably defer to my DOD colleagues uh, on this because they can give you a broader swath of kind of what we are doing. But just in a general sense, again, we believe strongly, and I think Secretary Mattis, again, not to speak for my colleagues, Uh, and Secretary Tillerson believe that we should be supporting the Philippine uh, government with regard to the insurgency that they are now facing uh, in a very, very sensitive and uh, important uh, place in in the Philippines. And I think at the end of the day, we are um, doing what we can to, again, to give them not just military support, and I want to make sure that everybody understands this, we're also looking at ways to do stabilization so that once they are able to, we hope, uh, defeat the insurgents. They will have the means to also uh, give the population there some prospect of uh, you know of greater prosperity and greater greater um, peace and prosperity I should say, which will allow then again the situation to calm down over the long term. And so we we're sent, looking at a whole variety of things. Have we sent
8: additional assistance to the Philippines recently in terms of military assistance? Do you want
2: to address the?
4: Uh, We are currently uh, sending assistance to the Philippines, and and the objective of that uh, in support of our policies is to uh, not only increase the the lethality and capabilities of the Philippine military, but also their ability to stabilize the situation uh, and also assisting them in institution building so that their troops can not only stabilize the situation, uh, uh, but ensure that, that the violence ceases. Uh, and that uh, and that uh, civil authority and civil stability is allowed to, to flourish.
8: And if they made additional requests for assistance uh, regarding ISIS or related groups in Mindanao?
3: We are in discussions with the Filipino government in that regard. I mean, we see that it, obviously the, the challenge in Marawi is not limited to that particular location, so we have concerns about it spreading beyond that uh, particular um, engagement right now, and so we are... Uh, discussing how we might best address it through additional assistance. Are
8: those discussions coming from requests from the Philippines, or are we, uh, did we proactively seek those?
3: I, I think it's—you uh, could say it's—it's it's probably uh, uh, initiating from both sides of the uh, recognition that it, it would be useful for us to cooperate in that regard. Thank you. And uh, I'm going to borrow the script here from.
5: Sure.
3: Yes, one quick, quick. Yeah, please. Senator
1: one, one, one point for the. I know, understand the the the, um, the policy on congressional review and disapproval, and uh, the law. Do you all believe that is helpful in furthering the goals that for the congressional review and disapproval process?
2: Absolutely. Um, we are incredibly, uh, as I said in the opening remarks, appreciative of the congressional role, and I think it is an essential oversight function that we have. Uh, you've clearly made your, your views known today, and we respect that, and we we look to it as a guideline for how we do some of our work.
3: Mr. Harvey, would would incur um, completely with what Ambassador now said. It, it's an essential part of our policymaking to have general uh, inputs.
4: It is an absolutely an essential part of our policy process.
1: I was hoping to hear that from you, and because uh, and, you know, our questions here are well intended, and we uh, feel very passionately about the values of this country and using every opportunity we have to, to, to uh, advance those values. And that's why you hear the passion from the members of this committee. And that's why it's important that the close relationship between State Department and Defense be maintained. And that's, I think, the reason behind the uh, National Defense Authorization Act Amendment. So explain to me why or do you would think of taking away from Congress the ability to deal with small arms, including the type of weapons that are used by snipers? Particularly when there have been two highly visible small arms sales—one that was withdrawn from the administ- by the administration uh, as as it relates uh, to Turkey, the other, which involves uh, the Philippines and their uh, extrajudicial killings of their civilian population and their drug policy—why would you think that would be helpful? to take away congressional review, or maybe you don't think it's helpful.
2: Senator, um, you're referencing, I think, uh, uh, the question of whether we transfer responsibility from state to commerce for a specific category or several categories of of weapons. Um, And this is part of a larger effort that we have undertaken over the last five, six years. But doesn't
1: these arms affect the policy considerations we're talking about here, particularly the message we're sending?
2: So I would say a couple of things. First of all, this is still; uh, these rules have yet to be fully published, and they will be, I hope, at some point, and then there will be plenty of time for further commentary. But I will say um, our belief strongly is that military-grade weapons will continue to be a function of State Department oversight. Um, what will be at least contemplated for transfer over to commerce would be Uh, the kinds of weapons that are readily available, you know, again, any retail outlet here in the United States. And so the notion that the State Department should be regulating their export overseas strikes us as not hewing to the specific purpose that the State Department is supposed to accomplish with its authority. So
1: if that's true, why did we labor over the Turkish sale and cancel it if it
2: So I would say a couple of things. First of all, again, just the assumption that that items will transfer over to the Commerce Department does not mean that there will be no process for actually evaluating those sales.
1: But that evaluation will not include Congress.
2: Well, uh, no, what I would say is that Commerce regularly comes to the State Department to ask our opinion on sales of that nature. But they don't come to Congress. You come to us, though, (laughs) and we will have some— But if Commerce is making
1: the decision— this committee loses all oversight, that is, human rights and other considerations are gone if you don't have congressional review. Congress doesn't review that. Yes, they may consult with you, but you're taking us out of the equation, and all three of you said congressional review is important.
2: Well, again, we believe strongly that the most important, most sensitive weapons, the ones that you would concern yourself with on a regular basis that, again, military-grade weapons, That's the kind of thing where the State Department should continue to exercise its controls. Um, Other kinds of weapons, uh, it just seems as though, again, what we're doing is we're dispersing the State Department's effort over a a number of different licensing arrangements where, in theory, we could be focusing on the kinds of things that we all know need to be, as a sensitive set of technologies, need to be uh, more more appropriately regulated.
1: I would just remind you, that the people of this country probably have focused more on what happened in Washington DC against uh, peaceful protesters and the extrajudicial killings in the Philippines. They're probably more knowledgeable about that than many of the other issues we've been talking about today. And they looked to their elected officials to represent their views. If we're gonna have a cooperative relationship It appears to me this is a direct affront to congressional input that you all thought was important.
2: Again, Senator, I I mean, we're happy to talk to you more, I think, about the categories of weapons that we're discussing and what the appropriate uh, dividing line among those weapons are. But um, our strong feeling is that we want the State Department to do what we believe those regulations were intended to do, which is focus on highly sensitive technologies where either our commercial edge or our troops will be endangered overseas through the spread of those weapons.
1: And sniper weapons don't fall into that category?
2: Again, it, it, we can talk a little bit more in, a, in a, a different setting about the specifics of each of those weapons, but I believe um, you know, we've looked closely at the kinds of things we are proposing, and again, this is all still in that stage, uh, but nevertheless, um, and we're happy to talk to you more about it.
1: Well, I, I'm glad to hear that because I have not... I could be wrong about that. I'm not. Aware, I'm reading press accounts, not consultation with Congress Understood. as to these decisions being made. Uh, I have certainly have not been privy to any direct opportunity. I've expressed myself pretty clearly about this, but I haven't seen any in- attempt to get the input of members of Congress on this we- policy change. And considering that there are two very highly visible sales that were involved here, it does look like an end run around Congress.
2: We would welcome the chance to give you a further briefing on this, you and your staff at, at any moment that you want.
1: Thank you. On behalf of Chairman Corker, uh, I want to thank all of our and on behalf of myself, I want <laughs> to thank all of the witnesses today for their testimony here today. The record will remain open until the close of business on Monday. Uh, so that members can submit questions for the record. We would ask our witnesses to promptly respond to those questions for the record. And with that, the hearing stands adjourned.